1: This is Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek. Welcome to our fifth podcast, At the End of the Day. This is a show about the lost art of medicine for those who are dissatisfied with healthcare's status quo. I'd like to invite my co-hosts to quick say hello. Hello, Andy. Well, hello. How are you gentlemen doing today? And
2: I use gentlemen very loosely.
0: (laughs) Fantastic.
2: Well, I resemble that remark and say, doing well. Glad to be here. That's good, my friends. Uh, I think uh, we first need to give a quick round of applause to
1: O. Uh, there's a huge congratulations in store. So uh, here's a round of applause to, to you, OS. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not sure if you want to publicly share that yet, but if you want to, I'll, I'll give you a, a few minutes to share what we're congratulating you about.
0: Sure, yes. Last week, my wife and I had our twins, which were born. And uh, so now I am a father of four, which immediately makes me much older than I want to be. But I am a father of four now.
2: Those last few black hairs are graying already.
0: Very quickly. Very quickly.
2: So, well, like I said, it's definitely an adventure.
1: And I congratulate you and your family on uh, this next chapter. Thank you, Andy. Congratulations. This is awesome. Thanks, AJ. And so with that, it's actually kind of a good segue into the first topic, which is an article that I read on to-do lists, because I'm sure, Wes, your to-do list is going to multiply kind of like a hockey stick on a, a great stock chart. It's
0: gone, up, it's gone up tremendously already,
1: and they're not, they're not even home yet. <laughs> and I was going to say, and that's just you know baby formula
2: and you know diaper changing. Oh, exactly. Well, I think a lot of it, too, is, you know, you don't have a to-do list anymore. You just need survival (laughs) (laughs) list.
1: And that really is the the first topic or the first article that I want to discuss, which is an article that I read recently in Fast Company, which was on this topic of to-do lists. You know, myself growing up, whether it's in my professional life or in my personal life, have always written to-do lists. But over the course of probably the the last few years, I've actually myself seen a a transition. And the article that I was reading and and that I shared with the both of you, actually McKinsey uh, went out and they asked uh, 1500 executives how they spend their time. It was interesting some of the data that they got back. 9% said the executives were very satisfied with how they're spending their time, Uh, but less than, 50% 50% actually responded that they're somewhat satisfied in how they're spending their time. And a third of the, the total population that were interviewed or polled were actively dissatisfied in how they're spending their time. And really what the, the essence of uh, the takeaway is, is that people are spending their time but they're not necessarily spending their time focused on their priorities. You know, what are their strategic imperatives? How are they going to move their, their business or their work forward? I know for myself, it's a struggle because there's a lot of different things going on. And, and what Fast Company was sharing was three different, you know, tools or techniques. The first one that they discussed was uh, alarms. So there's research that shows... What kind of alarms was that? Uh, so just any kind of alarm, like an alarm that you set on your phone, just a you know really loud noise that sort of disrupts what you're doing and, and kind of almost startles you. But what the research proved is that alarms are actually really important for the brain. The brain can't ignore these large or loud distractions in audible sounds, and and so you know there's sort of this flight or fight reaction, but That's a really good technique to kind of set eight, nine, 10, 11 alarms throughout the course of the day and give us time to sort of pause and check ourselves. Are we focusing on priorities or have we gotten sidetracked and are doing other tasks that don't necessarily roll up to to achieving our priorities? The second tool that they highlighted, which is something that I practice is just-in-time learning. We're busy, we've got topics or we have other deliverables that we need to meet, whether it's this week or the next week. And we don't necessarily have time to do a lot of research and prep work and so there's this concept of just-in-time learning which is doing a deep dive on the one or two tasks that you need to deliver in the next one or two weeks to keep progress moving mm-hmm. with the project or, or this strategic imperative and that really breaks down into sort of two subcategories the first being relevant so i'm going to do research just in time to what the topic is in order to kind of move the process along in the next milestone. The second aspect is actionable. I'm going to do research on information that I can actually take some insights from, and it allows me to take action to, again, move the process forward. And then the third tool that they described, which is another tool that I like to use, especially on Friday afternoons or Sundays, is... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> is the the 20% itch rule all of us from a creativity exploration perspective we like to be inquisitive we want to push ourselves we want to learn about new topics themes information and how do we dedicate 10 to 20% of our time during a week to give ourselves that ability to dive into new topics or interests or or items that we want to learn about. And the research also showed that free thinking, mind-wandering, is actually linked to better moods, increased productivity, and really achieving and defining more concrete goals. So those were the three tools, and really where I wanted to, to get to the topic of this is What are some tools that either of you use in trying to make sure that you're focused on the right work versus getting sidetracked in tasks that maybe don't necessarily lead to achieving strategy?
2: That's a good question. I think a lot of this is really intriguing as to how it's science-based, but it's something that we all kind of intuitively know or feel in our bones as human beings that we need time to let our minds just rest or wander. I I call it sometimes the fire-gazing paradox. We need time to just stare at a fire and think of nothing. What I'd like to do is I will, in my working-from-home office, take a half hour in the afternoon, put on some relaxing meditative spa kind of music, and I have a blackout face mask And I'll just kick my chair back and just relax for a half hour. And I might fall asleep. I have an alarm set. It's just that time to be still and to be calm. And it helps kind of flush out everything in my brain where I can clean everything up. All of the emails that have been coming in back and forth during the workday. I can reprioritize what I need to do next and focus on that. Even if my day has been laid out nine times out of 10, especially with the kind of work I do, I can plan my day and within one hour of the day starting, it all goes to pot. So I just know that I need that for me personally, I need that time to just disconnect, turn my phone off, turn my computer off, put on some calm music and just chill for a half hour. And that tends to be a great way to reset. You
0: know, that really sounds so relaxing just thinking about it right now and envisioning being able to kick back and put on uh, you know blinders over your eyes and just kind of kick back and just listen to soft soothing music. <laughs>
2: Like a, like that. Oh, look
1: like at that, I'm setting an alarm, sorry. Like I... that.
2: <laughs> so, No, my anxiety just went up 20%. <laughs> I know, exactly. So, so
0: Andy, when you talk about alarms, is that the kind of sound that you want, something that startles you?
1: For me, an alarm has to be something like that or else I'll just ignore it, honestly. When it comes to, you know, tasks and focus... I've actually never used alarms. It was a tool that they mentioned in the article that I thought was interesting and and maybe considering thinking about trying it in the next week. But alarms in general, I've never really used in in that fashion. I basically use it to wake me up in the morning and make sure I stay up.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've never used alarms in that fashion either. And for whatever reason, I've just kind of adapted, my body has adapted where I don't even use an alarm for the morning. I just kind of naturally wake up almost at the same time every single day. So I really have no need for alarms. I can't remember the last time I actually set an alarm. Um, So some sound like that would just startle me and I think throw me completely off focus. I think it's interesting of a concept to set alarms to refresh and regather. And, you know, I think the idea behind it is to prevent yourself from getting sidetracked on different projects that you should not be focusing on. And that's why they want you to set so many alarms every hour, every 45 minutes, just to refocus yourself. I find I do better with the to-do list. And it's something about actually writing down the task at hand and actually checking off a box or next to it or crossing it out. That makes me feel good about the task that I've completed And motivates me and uh, encourages me to continue going forward and, you know, clearing out that checklist before I end my day. That's kind of worked well for me. What about you guys? I mean, I know, Andy, you alluded to you don't use the alarms, but you use a second methodology. What about you, AJ? What do you what do you typically do?
2: Well, for me, I am somebody who is an adult with ADHD. So I use reminders, alarms, all sorts of different things to help my brain remember things so i have specific alarms set on my phone for when i need to take my ritalin or need to take care of something that's a everyday kind of thing i also use personally i use a to-do app called todoist and what i set up and structured was okay every monday and thursday i give the kids a bath so those are there on my daily to-do list those kind of routine habits so i can make sure that I'm getting those done. Now, the big struggle for me is making sure I check that every day and actually do them. But I try to set up specific routine habits that may look like a to-do list. But for me, it's just creating those good habits to help my brain focus on the task at hand. And many times when I sit down before I start the day, I'll look at everything and say, okay, these are the three things that I have to get done today. Nothing happens until I get these three things done. So I do the whole swallow the frog mentality of the most difficult thing, the most pressing matter, get that done first. And that's just something that I think was ingrained as a kid in my mind for my parents, where it was, you get your work done first and then you play. So I always make sure to get the most important task done first that day, and then move on to the next thing. You know, I think that's a,
1: a really good point. I know for me growing up, it, it was the same training or, or philosophy of, of my parents' is, is go to school, you come home, do your homework right away, and then you can go out and play or whatever you want to do on in your free time. I try and do those most important tasks on a daily basis my reality is whether I start at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning, for the most part, on eight hours of solid calls. And so what I've started to do is wake up an additional hour early in the morning. So that way I can use that time to set the tasks for the day I can think of what I've accomplished the day before, what I need to accomplish that day, the additional time that I have, I can use for exploration and and whatnot. And then I also set the same time at the end of each day to make sure that I've accomplished what I needed to, new tasks or new things that I need to think about for the rest of the week. Uh, I write myself a note uh, at the bottom of a a page and I keep multiple notebooks. I've got one for notes that I take during calls. I've got one that is more for strategy and and tasks at hand. I have a third notebook for one-on-ones with team members so that I understand what they're doing, what's important to them, how can I help them grow professionally. I've got a notebook for this, and then I've got another notebook, which is for thoughts and dreams and crazy ideas that I want to do. So at any one point in time, I've got five or six different notebooks that I go between.
2: It's funny how there's so many different types of styles of to-do apps, to-do lists. What I am curious about where the three daily hacks stick to your priorities, right? To-do lists are dead. It's almost like they're creating a new version of a to-do list because there's no way you can't not have a list to remember what to do stuff. But with your the just-in-time learning, I wanted to know what your thoughts are about what does just-in-time learning mean for you? Do you feel like you are constantly learning nowadays? Do you feel like you're in an industry where you have basically have learned enough experience on the job and that's it? For me personally, I ask this because I've always been of the mindset that you have to be a lifelong learner to be successful because nothing stays the same, especially now in today's world that's so evident, but you can't just rest on laurels anymore. You have to continually be educating yourself and whether that's about the services you use, the products you use, the skills that you need to develop, or even new skills you have to develop. Where do you find yourselves with that just-in-time learning mentality?
0: So I'll, I'll share my two cents. I think that for myself personally, it's always playing catch up, trying to, you know, obtain as much information as you can. There's so much information out there that you have to decipher what is important, what isn't, what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to. As our industry grows, as healthcare grows, as medicine grows, we have to be cognizant of what's happening. There's changes every single day. I mean, if you look at the way that I grew up or we grew up, I think we're all similar in age. You know, computers were an afterthought. We didn't have them in high school or in elementary school, but I've got my daughter starting kindergarten next week and she's expected to have her own laptop. And I've heard that in high school, they're teaching computer programming now. So, you know, these are skills that we didn't learn growing up, but now we have to learn to thrive in tomorrow's future. I think programming is important, even though... In healthcare, we don't use it. We don't need it. But I think for us to remain relevant to your point, AJ, we have to start adapting and being able to change with times and constantly continue to learn.
1: The reality is, is there's more than 5,000 medical publications that occur on a daily basis. So just the volume of content that's produced in any given day, given week, month, or year, there's no way that any one of us can can keep up with that. You know, as you look to, to technology and in, in different items like that, I've got probably 12 or 13 different RSS feeds that come to me at the end of the day by topic and I open them up and very quickly I do the, the scan and those items that are important to me are the ones that I click on and, and I read. In addition to that, I also use my social channels for that as well. I have different search criteria set up, whether it's on Twitter, Instagram, or or different channels like that, to see what's being shared, who's talking about what, what are the KOLs, um, highlighting and sharing and, and retweeting and liking. There's a selection of those that I read, and then I actually save them to my own list. So by calendar week, I save anywhere between 10 and sometimes hundred articles. And those are the articles that I've read each one of them and I try to understand the most. So that's actually sort of my hack for just in time learning is I, I look to those that I respect. I look to adjacencies, I look to where I want to explore. I find those people that I think are the most knowledgeable or the most trustworthy. And it's really sort of copying what they're reading, what they're sharing, what they find
2: interesting. And that's kind of how I build my knowledge base. Let's go over to Wes and talk about a new phobia that's developing, which might actually lead to Andy's Pavlovian response to his notification.
0: So I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but nomophobia is the first time I've heard about it and it is short for no mobile phone phobia. Apparently becoming a widespread phenomenon, nomophobia is a fear of being without a mobile phone. This is extremely common amongst college students and is associated with a lack of and poor sleep health. So a study was conducted with about 327 college kids, approximately about 20 years old, to determine if they suffered from nomophobia. It was determined that 89% of students suffered from moderate to severe cases of nomophobia. What participants did in the study was they completed several questionnaires, including the Nomophobia Questionnaire, Epworth Sleepness Scale, and the Sleep Hygiene Index. They found that college kids who experienced more nomophobia were also more likely to experience sleepiness and poor sleep hygiene, such as taking long naps throughout the day, and inconsistent bed and wake times. I don't know about you guys, but I don't recall having consistent sleep cycles during college or regimented sleep cycles, as I try to have now. <laughs> so,
2: um, I don't remember sleeping in college.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if this is really something that they should be looking at college kids for. I mean, I think it'd be interesting to look at this, uh, you know, conduct a study similar to this, to individuals that are either working, you know, the working generation, or the retired generation see what the difference is between the two generations. I think that would be an interesting contrast rather than trying to base a study off of college kids. Because as you know, I mean, between cramming for exams, partying, doing all the other things that you know college kids will typically do, you can't really rule it out to, to be nomophobia, uh, nomophobia. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, to resist the urge to say those darn kids and their technology these days, I think that this can be a very real thing. And I see it in people who are engaged on their phones quite a lot. People who are in my age group in their 40s do teenagers. So I think it's one of those things where that is how we connect. That's how we talk to one another. We don't have landlines at home to call. So if I need to get a, a hold of you, you have to have your phone on you. So I think it's maybe a little deeper of an issue than they're thinking of with just the panic and worry and fear of just not having your phone with you. I think we've developed such a symbiotic relationship with our phones that it is very difficult to exist without it nearby. And I know that in a lot of social situations, in a lot of ways... We can put it away, we cannot have it. But since so much of our lives are dependent upon that, it isn't a surprise that we have some type of visceral, physical, psychosomatic reaction to not having these devices around because we expect people to respond to our emails in short time, our text messages, our phone calls, our Snapchats, or whatever. We have that cultural expectation now that, We're reachable 24-7. And if you haven't drawn healthy boundaries, then not having your phone next to you can cause these issues and these fears and probably even manifestations of physical symptoms, which it sounds like that is happening as well. So has the mobile phone become the world's biggest
1: research experiment on the Pavlonian response?
2: That's a very good question for Cal Newport, who wrote the book Digital Minimalism, which I read last year, which actually inspired me and helped me understand just how much my life was being dictated by those dings and notifications to where now, outside of my phone calls, my text messages, and a few very select applications, I don't get notifications. I've turned them all off. It Almost takes control of your life, creating those healthy boundaries. I'm not going to become a Luddite and smash everything because that is just not a way to live in society nowadays. But what you can do is you can actually have control to develop healthy boundaries with a lot of things with the tech boom and tech giants. You know, that's cyclical cycle of the railroad barons back in the late 1800s, were kind of like realizing, okay, we went too far. Now we have to course correct a little bit with a lot of these technologies that have come out in the last 20, 30 years.
1: Yeah, a few, I think uh, probably two years ago, I wrote a piece on rings, dings, pings, and other things. Uh, and, you know... What about wingdings? dings <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was really from the perspective of when we go back into the world of medicine, and we think about the the most sacred interface, which is between a physician and a patient. Oftentimes, there are beepers, there's cell phones, there's overhead paging, there's knocks at the door. There's all of these items that disrupt the sanctity of that conversation and and building trust between the, the physician and the patient. And the thing that I was trying to highlight with rings, dings, and other things was the fact that we need to realize that, whether it's a cell phone or other alarms, that there's a time for it and a time in which we need to to put it away. To your point, AJ, there is a reality that maybe not for our generation, but the generations that are digital natives, they've grown up with this as part of their life. And it's, it's an extension of who they are, what they do, how they communicate, how they provide context to their life and situations, that it probably is real. Now, I would also argue, like a Wes, that doing this research experiment into college age students is probably not the best demographic because there's a lot of other things that probably attribute to, you know, anxiety. Sleeplessness, lack of sleep, inability to fall asleep. Probably not the best uh, segment to to focus on from our research. But I think we do have to acknowledge that it probably is a real fear and anxiety that a lot of the digital native young adults and and adolescents and children that are growing up are going to, to continue to experience throughout their lives.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting when I read this article, it made me think of actually my father. And I'll give you guys an example. And it's actually a pretty funny story. So for my sister is obviously living with them now that everything is being remote. She's not in college, she's gonna be taking courses at home. And for whatever reason, they decided to change their package of the Wi-Fi speed. And it's slower now than it was historically. Uh, So my sister said to my dad, Hey dad, when I have a a call, you can't be on your internet. And my dad had a panic a a moment for, you know, it was interesting. He had a panic attack almost. He was like, what do you mean? I can't be on my phone. What do you mean? I can't do this. what do you mean? I can't do that. You know, there is that sense of security of being connected all the time. And if I'm seeing that in a, you know, the older generation, I'd love to see how many other parents and grandparents are kind of have this dependency on their phones. If you think about it, when you're getting around, if you're traveling somewhere, you're using Google Maps. It has given us this dependency to know that I'll be okay as long as I have my phone that has a full battery. I can get in touch with someone. I can't get lost. I can get directions as I need. I can get restaurant food, you know, recommendations. There is that level of dependency. But when you actually take it away, like when I go on vacation, I don't take a phone with me. I don't, you know, I don't get the local SIM cards, and we travel internationally. And it's nice to not have the reliance on a cell phone and not be connected all the time. It's nice to just be unplugged. what, What are your experiences? What are your thoughts, guys?
2: AJ? In the last year after reading Digital Minimalism, which I can't recommend enough, it has been a constant, not struggle, but a constant front of mind thing to be aware of the type of boundaries I create and convey those expectations to others and being purposeful about leaving my phone away. And what I want to do is try to rekindle those neurons in your brain of critical thinking and being able to go out and know that you're fine without it and teach my kids the same skills. I think a big part of it is that I was able to grow up pre-internet days and be a digital native in high school, hopping on the internet for the first time and being along for the ride through every iteration of how it's been connected so even if i leave my phone at home i do have a secret backup plan with a cell tower enabled apple watch so if i need to make a call or if i need to ask siri something as limited as the answers may be i do have that but the nice thing is is that i don't have that big weight in my pocket sitting there reminding me that it's there. And I think that there is some freedom in being able to leave your phone at home, have phone-free times. I do really appreciate that when the workday is done, the phones go in a drawer and we try to focus on family time. And I think it's just adjusting and relearning those patterns of behavior we had before And understanding how to prioritize and draw healthy boundaries, I think we can get very excited. And just like I think all of our phones had at one time when we first got a smartphone, we had 150 apps on our home screen and thought we would use every one of them every single day and now maybe use a dozen at most every day. I think a part of the natural reaction to new technologies and to new things. So I think just dividing those healthy boundaries is key and something I want to pass on to my children as well. Well, right now
1: I've got anxiety because uh, I'm really trying to like add the book Digital Minimalist to my (laughs) Amazon cart and... It's on my phone and it's right there, but so I'm having anxiety right now not being able to do that. For me, when I go on vacation or travel or whatnot, more times often than not, I specifically pick places that are either going to be difficult to get cell reception or are going to be painful for me to manage, whether it's SIM cards or... Or data plans or whatever else. And so I specifically do that because I want to be able to disconnect, be out of the matrix, and just have that time to focus on being away and rejuvenating and relaxing and being creative. The other thing that I do is while I live by my phone and my laptop and my Apple Watch, I do leave my phone at home when I'm going to go for a bike ride or a walk or exercise or something like that. The other thing that I do is I love books and I love reading. So I still get Bass Company and Ink magazines and I'll sit down and I'll read them cover to cover in one sitting. I try and read on average one book every two to maybe three weeks, depending on what's going on. And that's really my time to be disconnected and just to be present. That's kind of how I figure out my own way to, to disconnect from my phone and technology. So, so that's what's worked for me. So since you both are either setting alarms or are busy on your phones texting one another, that might actually be a, a really great segue to uh, shed some new skin onto... Uh,
2: last topic. <laughs> Ooh. No, I think that's a really good good transition. That was definitely worthy of your fatherhood right there as, as dad humor goes. But I think what I found really interesting in my feedly feed today was human skin regenerated from fish skin. So years ago, Brazilian doctors and other doctors have been using fish skin to treat burn victims as a gauze. So Back in, I found this article back in 2017, where researchers in Brazil were experimenting with, for severe burns, using the skin of tilapia fish because of the abundance of tilapia and the skins just being there, but also the amount of collagen that is in the skin that helps promote the healing. So it has been used in place of, in the past, doctors have used frozen pig skin or even human tissue to keep your burn skin moist and allow the transfer of collagen but because of tilapia there's such an abundance of collagen in there it had helped severe burn victims not lose so much tissue and actually help regenerate their own skin and tissue so now and i believe i found this on springwise and it's like it's in norway so a norwegian medical fish skin company if you could believe that they're they're actually dedicated a an entire company to this kerasis is pioneering the use of fish skin in tissue regeneration and wound care. So, what I find really wild is it's codfish skin, and they graft it onto the damaged human tissue, and that helps recruit the body's own cells and prevents infections and is ultimately converted into living tissue. Maybe this is the start of chimera blending of tissues, but it's so wild that there is no disease transfer risk with cold water fish and humans. So you can't just graft skin from other mammals and hope that it works. But there's something, and I don't think they've figured out exactly all of the fine details, but to be able to know that these cod fish skin grafts will have no risk of disease transfers and they help you regenerate your skin and your healthy tissues in a very organic way i think is super cool and super wild as far as technology goes because sometimes the technology that we see becomes so invisible and it becomes so i'm not even know what the word is but it, it becomes something that you may have thought of something as a traditional remedy hundreds of years ago, but now we know why it works and we can reapply it and use it in a very strategic scientific way. So I think it's it's really cool. And the thing that I think is really wild as well is that not only is it helping you regenerate healthy skin and tissue, but it can be stored at room temperature for up to three years. And then with a 30 to second dip in water to rehydrate and be used as an application. I was just blown away by this, by just the amazingness of uh, what I would call biomimicry design and by this idea of using something that's naturally there in nature and it's organic. And it's it's just such a cool application that I've never heard of before.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I've never heard of this before either.
2: So are they actually using it in practice or is it still theory? Yeah, No, it is in practice. So the article from Brazil in 2017, I found, has a picture of a small child who has severe burns on it, and they are grafting the tilapia skin onto it to help. You can buy a pack of, I'm sorry, I'm probably not pronouncing it on the right Norwegian way, even though I am in Minnesota. eh? The Kerasis um, sells their skin units from one cod, so you get eight of these, and for about, Four hundred and twenty euros. So you can buy them today. Keresis k e r e c i s dot com. You can go, hop on their website right now and go buy some codfish. Sweet.
0: You know, as you're talking about this, I think this is this could be a great application for certain types of cancer uh, cancer treatments. You know, sometimes when you're treating patients with cancer, there's a lot of uh skin burning, and you know, we natural we try to use natural. Elements such as aloe vera gel to try to help the skin recover, replenish, hydrate. This could be a great alternative to that as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great application, OS. As you were sitting there and kind of stating it, I was thinking back to the clinic on where you see a lot of the, you know, skin breakdown, the skin erythema. So yeah, I I think this would be a, a really great application and an alternative. We'll have to reach out and see if others have, A, heard about it, and B, if there's anyone within our circle that is actually using it or or would consider testing it out. I think it'd be really interesting.
2: For sure. Yeah, and I'm looking at their website right now, and as of August 27th, 2020, they secured a $21 million financing from a Silicon Valley bank. That is really interesting news. I think people are starting to find out more about them, and especially when you get the Silicon Valley bank to recognize and give you a $21 million venture check, that's a good sign.
0: So, Asia, are you alluding that this is coming to a hospital near you?
2: It could be. <laughs> With uh, U.S. funding, that means that they, they will probably... Start initiating an FDA approval process. Yeah. This is one reason why I'm so intrigued by the idea of biomimicry design, because you can find things that nature has perfected and iterated upon for millennia for using something with the least amount of energy resources and the most maximum effect. And if we can figure out how to replicate that for needs that we have, then we can be much more sustainable in our design and our science and also be much more effective and efficient with how we build things and how we design things for the future.
1: As I sit here and, and I think of the, the three different topics that we discussed today, whether it's the fact of writing out lists and sort of having checklists, whether it's the fear or anxiety of being without your mobile phone or being connected, or this last one about reproduction and, and using cells from codfish to, to reproduce and regenerate growth of, of new skin. The, the whole topic is really sort of this play between what you see in biology and technology. Now, the first two topics, it's more about how technology has caused this innate reaction that dates back to, you know, the bell ringing, salivating of dogs and that sort of Pavlonian uh, response. And this one is sort of on the other end of the spectrum where it's using the natural tendencies of healing and regeneration that comes from other species, and then being able to apply that in a useful and productive way with humans. At least from my perspective, I hope we see more of the latter than we do the former, just because I think the latter is, that's where we need the innovation to to come from. That's really at the heart of science and research, is that we want to be able to improve the lives of people in our communities and the patients that that they, they may become versus creating more cogs in, you know, the the structure of a semi-pseudo business that we call healthcare. And so at least for me that's kind of how I tie all of this together and sort of see how the the different topics interweave. What about you guys?
2: I think as we further science and technology, I think the distinction between the biological and the technical are going to start commingling quite a lot. And I feel like in science fiction, when you hear those writers that are trying to project something great into the future, that we were born on this planet. We've evolved on this planet. It all works. There's a certain balance of harmony with everything and life finds a way. And I think we are with our ability to reason and to use logic and to use our brains starting to understand how we can replicate that which just has naturally formed into advantageous ways another example of biomimicry design that maybe you've seen that i love this melding is when biologists have researched why whales can turn as fast as they can because of their size and drag coefficient and all of that fluid dynamics they should not be able to turn as fast as they do but what they found is the ridges on their fins on the front of their fins actually create miniature whirlpools in front of the fins to lower the drag coefficient so they can turn faster so they used that knowledge to apply it to wind turbine blades for windmills. What they found out is that they actually generate more energy with less use, with less force, and can actually turn faster when there's a shift in wind direction. Silly little things like that, by using nature as inspiration, we're gonna see that melding happen. And I think it's gonna be really exciting to see how that improves people's lives in each way moving forward.
0: That's a that's a great example, AJ, of really taking what nature provides, putting it together, putting advanced technology into use, using examples that we see with nature. That's an awesome, awesome example.
1: I've always been a firm believer that the best technology melds into the background and dissolves and you don't really even notice that the technology is there. And I think as you know, science and research and humanity continues to grow, we continue to learn from nature how to adapt that through technology and then apply it into challenges, I think we're going to to see that increase. In, and that's really where I'm excited about the future. But like that sort of wrapping of technology and, and melding into the environment, I actually think that's a good way to wrap uh, for today. So sorry, again, another dad joke.
2: With that, um, AJ, I'll, I'll let you start wrapping it up for us. All right. Well, I've been AJ Montpetit, and you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, because that's all I give my life to for social media. And that's at AJMONTPETIT. And if you want, you can always say hello there.
0: I'm Awes Mirza, and you can find me on Twitter at AwesFMirza.
1: And as always, I'm Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek. And I'd like to just remember and remind everyone, this podcast is called At the End of the Day. And so with that, remember, at the end of the day, it's all about practicing medicine, love, art, and life at the end of one.